0: Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Rock knows no race, creed, gender, or age. And that last point is one at the very core of the mission for the Young at Heart Chorus. Their organization just passed the 40-year mark, and they're taking the stage for the Love Show this Sunday at the Academy of Music. We'll be joined by several members of the chorus and director Bob Sillman for Live Music Friday.
1: And we'll talk with investigative journalist from Western Mass, Dusty Christensen, about his cover story in The Nation magazine, Exploitation, Abuse, and Death the dark side of working in the weed industry, a story that begins in Hoyoke. But first. Usually on Fridays, we enter the wine thunderdome, but because it's Cinco de Mayo, it seemed like wine was not necessarily the direction to go in. But initially, I thought, what should we drink on Cinco de Mayo? And I thought about my friend, Chef Neptali Duran, originally from Oaxaca, who now lives in Hoyo, and his passion for mezcal
2: thank you for doing this yeah Chef of course App. welcome so but according to our friend caitlin <laughs> I'm, a, I'm one of those chefs that brings a lot of takeout <laughs> <laughs> and you did
1: bring takeout from a colombian restaurant on high street that we've had the empanadas before
0: they are, they are a
3: great and great
0: place to go they're <laughs> great empanadas. They're good empanadas i'll give you that <laughs> there's a lot of shade happening over i know here. right <laughs> And, uh, I didn't know that this was the kind of Thunderdome we were coming to. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> like, we're the ones who bring the heat at the Thunderdome. and
1: like. And the uh, point of the Thunderdome is two beverages enter, one leaves. We decide which one we like the best. We happen to be at the home in Holyoke of our guest from a couple weeks ago, who is also a storyteller at the uh, CISA Field Notes event last weekend, Chelsea Gazillo, Thank you for having us on your porch. Oh,
3: you're welcome. Porch but, life.
1: Now, Khalees yesterday on the air did a great piece with Latinas 413 and Hot Plate Brewing in Pittsfield, who are trying to have a more... Appropriate celebration of Cinco de Mayo, which has been commandeered, like so many things, by U.S. Americans.
0: Uh, the I- irony being that it's a holiday that started in Texas. <laughs> it's not a huge holiday, from what I
1: understand, in most places in Mexico. It is, as some people call it here, and you called it when you came onto the porch now
2: Cinco de Drinko. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and nothing's wrong with drinking. We do it a lot. But uh, there's better ways to celebrate, perhaps, this day than uh, whatever kind of horrible drink you might put down your throat and mezcal for those who don't know
2: is part of the tradition uh,
1: specifically from where you're from in mexico
2: and puebla there's a lot of uh, nice mezcal in puebla oaxaca guerrero most mostly southern states but there is a connection with texas actually you know it's a tumultuous part of mexican history but the battle of puebla which is mostly symbolic the general who won that battle was born in texas Ignacio Zaragoza. So that may be why they started celebrating that.
1: And if it were for that victory, it's possible that the French could have come up and joined the Confederate Army, and the Civil War in this country would have looked very different. So there is a good reason to celebrate.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the background behind that is that the English, the Spanish, and the French were owed money by Mexico, and they took the opportunity of the Civil War to start something with Mexico because the U.S. was distracted. The English and the Spanish left after a few months, but the French really wanted to expand their, their empire. In this case, it was Napoleon Bonaparte third, not the original one, but the third. Uh, and he, to make uh, something happen with the Austrians, installed an Austrian emperor, Maximiliano, Maximilian. And Maximilian was at war with the first indigenous president from Oaxaca. And eventually, once the civil war in the U.S. ended, the U.S pressure the french to like really leave mexico benito juarez the president the first president from oaxaca regains power and because we like happy endings they uh, executed maximilian <laughs> <laughs> B-M. and that brings
1: us to mezcal for those who don't know what mezcal is it's a tequila
2: the other way around. Yeah, huh. Tequila is a mezcal. a mezcal. Tequila is a mezcal. The tequila companies have done a really good job at marketing. So you would think that is the other way around, but no. Mezcal is one of the oldest distillations in the whole continent over 8500 years and mezcal especially in the south can be made with many different uh, kinds of agave including the now endangered wild agaves. For example, something the Calis is about to open uh, is a Tepestate. It's a blend, but the Tepestate takes up to 25 years to mature and you harvest it once and that's it. That's the end of that. So it's, it's really special as opposed to tequila, which is only made uh, made from a uh, blue agave. Blue agave, agave grows anywhere from like seven to 10 years, but same thing, you harvest it and it's, it's gone. Now, when a lot of people think of Mezcal, they think of a smokiness to it. Is all Mezcal smoky? no not all mezcal is created equal most people that have tasted <laughs> mezcal have really tasted low quality mezcal good mezcal back home it's above 50% alcohol what we get in in the US because of regulations nothing can come in that is over 50% so what you're getting here is 40 45 38 low a little bit not only lower quality but also uh, things that are not that interesting Same as with wine. If you taste good mezcal, you should be able to taste the terroir. The sweetness, the yes, sometimes a little bit, uh, a little bit of smoke. If it only had one distillation, but usually with mezcal would would be distilled distilled at least twice. There'll be a hint of smoke, but it's not on the front end. This one is a blend: Tepestate, Tobala, and Espadina, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, this was uh, for a celebration of a music teacher last year. He turned 91 years old, and he wanted a big celebration, so they did a batch of this beautiful blend. And this is probably the last bottle. Oh, so we won't, that bite. We won't drink that the whole batch. thing. We'll oh. only taste a little bit of it.
1: And then what's this? You brought another mezcal in what looks like a hand-labeled jug.
2: Yeah, that one is a straight-up pastate, not a blend. From the same family, that agave takes 25 to 30 years to mature.
1: We're on, as we mentioned, Chelsea Gazillo's porch. But let's talk to the other tasters. What's your name, sir? Bill Perry. also from Holyoke.
3: Caitlin Marquis, also from Holyoke. All
1: right, Holyoke represents on this porch. <laughs> We're going to go into the the mezcal Thunderdome. Let's eat oysters that you got from Maine.
0: From Maine, yes. Yeah, and they are... Secret Maine oysters is Secret what they Maine are. Oysters. You
1: have to reach out to us individually if you want to know about this. Naf, you started this too, and this was like a
2: pandemic-era bomb for you, right? Yeah, this was uh, a way to survive the pandemic when restaurants were not open and we needed something delicious to it. We started ordering back in 2020 from uh, farms in Maine. They ship overnight, uh, really affordable. They come out to like a back 25 per oyster. And uh, the quality is really good, really amazing oysters.
1: We're going to eat the oysters and empanadas, and uh, we'll dig into the mezcal and other beverages.
3: Tell me more about who made this mezcal.
2: A family in a very specific town. I usually don't like to uh, name the families or the towns because we don't want everyone to go there. That mm-hmm. I've been working with not only on tasting their mezcal but we're also been working on reforestation projects with this family this family of musicians and mezcal makers hence
0: the dude on the label with the Mm -hmm.
2: saxophone and the name of it is dos pasiones you can buy it mostly in the west coast right now but eventually you'll be able to buy it in the east coast dos pasiones mezcal the other thing that we should get to that's a little more serious about mezcal and tequila there's been an influx
1: of people that aren't from Mexico originally going down there and taking advantage of where this these cactus, this agave grows and making their own labels, making their own imprints and affecting the indigenous makers of this product, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, we just had a press conference last week most of the mezcal brands are owned by people not from from oaxaca which really devalues the not only the craft but also uh, it cheapens the uh, the spirit of uh, sharing this mezcal is not meant to like be drank every day or it's only for celebration and only for special occasions and if we drink it like as we drink tequila on cinco de drinko It's really not sustainable. It's not only not sustainable because of the plant, but monocropping in general. We've seen that over and over, all over the United States, including here. Monocropping is not good for the environment. And on top of that, you have the economic pressure of money really not coming back to our communities. Initial thoughts, please.
0: This smells kind of amazing in the glass, like a little tropical-y, almost like starfruit-y, and then like a little hint of smoke, but it smells sweet. Yeah, the first whiff I
1: got had a smoke to it, but then it gets to this almost thing. It smells like baby powder from like the 1980s. Are I, you okay, I don't you know. see like, See? <laughs> see? Yeah, so
4: it awesome. might be the
1: power of suggestion, but it's like the baby powder that like was around my house in the 80s.
3: It has, it has like a, a grandma's attic smell off of it a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: I love when people use weird things to describe <laughs> smells and tastes. It's my favorite.
3: I'm getting notes of uh, dried robin's blood, old dirty cashews, and just a hint of a robot's bathwater. What
2: do you get out of this now? Pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that also that we also say is like you, uh, mezcal is suppo- you're supposed to kiss it, besos de mezcal, kisses. It's not shots. Mm, yeah, right.
5: It sips so so smoothly. It's so
0: nice. Do you find with the producers that have moved in, I mean, you were talking about monoculture, clearly they're paying less attention to sustainability, especially with a crop that takes years, sometimes decades, to grow.
2: No, I mean, there's the new gold rush. Everyone wants... To make money, and not only they're cutting corners, but one of my family's projects down there is reforestation and water conservation. So we see large monocropping, but also water theft, meaning people are uh, drilling deep wells, you know, to keep planting agave.
0: What is overplanting of agave done due to the soil?
2: Yeah, beyond the depletion of the soil, the most worrisome thing for me, and we we've seen that a lot this year, is the lack of native grasses and native trees which with nowadays we have monsoon like rains so and we're seeing a lot of erosion and flooding a lot of flooding and if the soil is already poor and then there's flooding, the floods are taking any top soil that they're made of being left
0: and frankly your plants with them because like they don't have anything to hold on to right are there farmers that are implementing uh sustainable soil practices
2: Last winter, you know, I, I go home every winter, I talk to a lot of younger farmers, our age and younger, and we're pretty young. Uh, <laughs> we keep telling ourselves. Younger farmers really understand we will not have food and future generations if we don't take care of the soil and the environment. However because the the pressure to like produce is so large there's only families and some communities are are taking care of the ecosystem but it's hard and then the philosophical and ethical question for all of us should we really be drinking mezcal we don't have to should we and it's really hard to like answer that question because the pressure of capitalism will make people continue to make mezcal are there opportunities to do better absolutely are there families and communities that are that are trying of course but the hungry ghost of capitalism will make us you know want to drink more of this and right now the boom is uh, in the u.s and in europe it's pretty big people feel pressured to make money now the economic reality of peasant families in oaxaca where the minimum daily wage not hourly wage minimum daily wage is less than 10 dollars a day for a laborer. So. How are we going to say or judge communities for trying to make some money when the disparity, which the U.S. is majorly responsible for, is so great? So the second mezcal nef
1: no, it's not blended. It's just a, one type of agave?
2: Yeah, that's the day, 25 to 30-year-old growth, single agave.
1: And you were saying that the other ones, they're different types of agave, or that went into that other one.
2: That one, I think, is particularly delicious because it was made for a celebration of an elder. Some purists will say that not to drink ensembles, which are blends, but this one is really good. There was a lot of love going into that one, and and you can tell.
1: What were the types of agave that were in that one?
2: Two wild ones. No, three wild ones, actually. Tepestate, which is the it takes the longest to mature. The, second, the other one is Javali, which is really difficult to work with. Uh, I think there are some tannins that make it difficult to work, so there are people that know how to make it, and then other people struggle. And then, then the other one is Tobala, which is like a 12-year growth. And the fourth one is uh, espadín, which is like the, now the cultivated one. What do you think about the second one, the single agave?
1: It smells so cool. Mm, Less smoky and
0: less baby powdery to me. Like not smoky at all. It smells like trees. Yeah. And there's
1: more of a, like an umami Mm. flavor of this one. It definitely feels
5: meaty. Bill? A little, like you said, a little less smoky, still super complex. Not maybe, maybe not as sweetness. Yeah, not yeah. No sweetness.
3: You were saying you like when people come up with weird
1: things that it yeah. smells like. I'm getting, like, new car smell off of it. Oh, I'm getting a new car, so that's
0: perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a new car, too. Old new car, by Okay, way. cool. Wait, you don't, wait, don't put the electric slide ideas. in there. When I say it's electric, I'm going to be <laughs> a little mad at you. It's electric!
1: Chef Naftali Duran, who is guiding us on this tour. Lots of wines and other alcohols are aged in oak or barrels, but
2: uh, mezcal is not. Mezcal is uh, is aged in glass, traditionally blown glass, carboys, and that's what people usually use now. But with the demand, it's like getting really hard to get them. And you also have to remember, mezcal is not supposed to be brown or yellow. That's usually a good telltale sign that it's not a good one. It has to be clear. Pro tip, and also try to avoid anything that has a scorpion or a guarm. <laughs> There's mezcal that like people putting like snakes and herbs and other things, and those are traditional healing properties. But it's it takes away from the spirit.
1: You can't have it either of these mezcals in this part of the country at this point but we will put a list up there of recommended by chef neff mezcals that you might be able to get but the two that we have here that neff brought with him from oaxaca one which is a celebratory uh, mezcal that was a blend and one that is awesomely labeled in a jug with a piece of scotch tape on it but it's a single varietal of agave votes on which one you like the best
5: bill oh i love this hint of smokiness of the dos pasiones it's just and this there's a lot of really subtle awesome flavors going on in there Chelsea.
0: i think the second one was smoother the the single varietal and i love that it's from neff's family Calice man this is a hard choice but I think I'm gonna go with the second one I like all the vegetal notes in it the oysters offset both of them to make it sweeter but like it's a little more subtle with the second one I loved them both a lot so this is a really tough decision it's a really tough decision Mm -hmm. I don't want to choose yeah (laughs) but I like Bill
3: and I over here are like we choose (laughs) (laughs) like we
0: have no stake in this who cares about our choices
1: I'm gonna make it even so that Neff can be the deciding vote I'm gonna go with the blend the 25 year dos pasiones so chef Neff, you're the deciding
2: vote here. I went to this party last last May, 91st birthday of this elder who taught music to so many kids around the state. There were like a thousand people at this party, so just because it has sentimental value, I'm going with that. But it's also delicious. A blend is delicious. Mm-hmm. There's the winner. And thank you
1: for elucidating the world of mezcal to us on the Cinco de Mayo.
2: Absolutely. Please drink responsibly and don't shoot mezcal and try to buy... Good mezcal that is owned by families from Oaxaca. And don't be racist today. You know, don't put a sombrero. Don't take the pictures. Enjoy the culture. Enjoy the food. You know, have a beverage. But stop with the nonsense.
1: You might not be able to get the mezcal that chef Naftali Duran tasted with us, but you can taste his cooking next weekend at Collider Fest at Bombix in Florence. And next week on the show, we'll have the producer of Collider Fest, Ido Moore, talking about the incredible music he's bringing to the 413 from around the
0: world. Coming up, investigative journalist Dusty Christensen on his cover story in The Nation magazine about the hidden dangers of the cannabis industry. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
1: Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Dusty Christensen is an investigative reporter based in western Massachusetts, currently teaches news writing and reporting at UMass Amherst, and sometimes... Gets hired by the NEPM news department to report on stories yeah, we can't about
0: report on because we can't report on about ourselves.
1: NEPM. And you have written a cover story in the Nation magazine. The headline: Exploitation, Abuse, and Death: The Dark Side of Working in the Weed Industry. The cannabis industry is booming. The subtitle says, but workers say they face low wages, rapacious bosses, and life-threatening conditions. I uh, thought, Dusty, it would be great for you to read without the F word that's in there.
5: (laughs) uh, The first couple paragraphs of this, because I think it really sets the scene. Sure. Sure. I can do some scene setting for you. There's a memory that haunts Laura Brunel, like a video playing over and over. She remembers the unremarkable. Have a good one. She gave her only child, Lorna McMurray, as she dropped her off at the cannabis processing facility in Holyoke, Mass, where she worked. It was January 4th, 2022 the last day Brunel saw her daughter conscious. Later that day, Lorna texted her that she was having a hard time walking and breathing at the same time. Brunel raced to the facility, but by the time she arrived, ambulances and fire trucks were already there. She watched as paramedics wheeled her daughter out on a gurney, one of them straddling on top of her, just pounding at her chest, she said. I'll never Bleeping. forget that yeah. sight, Brunel said. I lost it. I just started screaming, oh, my God, save my baby. It's a really tragic story that went um,
1: underreported for a long time, and you've brought it to the light of the nation, literally, the United States and the magazine called The Nation. The nation. Um, but you came across this story
5: because of a podcast? Is that true? Yeah, there was a, there's a podcaster and cannabis activist Mike Crawford, who runs this podcast called The Young Jerks. Um, not sure why it's called that. Uh, well, there's The Young Turks, so maybe it's a play on that. I'm
1: assuming.
5: Mike's, <laughs> Mike's great, and Mike is very plugged into the world of cannabis workers, speaks to a lot of them on the air, and uh, was the first one to notice this uh, fine that OSHA had levied against the company where Lorna McMurray worked, uh, truly even Holyoke, uh, based on her death in the workplace. Uh, they initially said that it was because of the hazards of ground cannabis Dust in the workplace, um, and initially charged the company thirty five thousand dollars around that in fines. Uh, since then, the the it ocean, got reduced, right? Did it, it get reduced to around fourteen thousand dollars, which uh, truly, if they posted something like six hundred and eighty million dollars in profits last year, probably had no problem uh, paying, uh, no trouble. And uh, you know those those fines got reduced, and they've also agreed to do a study now of. Whether cannabis dust, ground cannabis dust, should be considered a hazardous chemical in occupational settings, Uh, they've they've since said that it's likely that uh, that Lorna died from an, an asthma attack. Um, So obviously we as reporters uh, at The Nation, this is also co-published with a local news outlet, The Shoestring, decided that this was a lens onto a much bigger issue. I'd spent a lot of time when I worked at the Daily Hampshire Gazette talking with cannabis workers. I know some of them personally myself and knew that there was a bigger story here about the kind of working conditions in these grow facilities that are all across our state and region and obviously across the nation as well.
0: Do you find that there's a difference at least in in workplace between the places that are like interstate like, larger, like, countrywide organizations and the places that are much smaller, like, local operations?
5: That's a really good question, and I know that the workers that we spoke to uh, mentioned uh, that maybe if they had worked in the industry previously when it was more, as they said, like, mom and pop, that the working conditions did tend to be better. You know, they knew their bosses directly. Uh, As you know, truly, this one facility... This one company that we focused on is a multi-state operator. They've got operations all over the place. They're based in Florida. And um, and a lot of these really big companies uh, were some of the ones where we were able to find um, uh, fines from OSHA, for example, de- detailing uh, workplace uh, injuries and, and hazards. Uh, these were also some of the companies that were engaged in uh, union busting, as we discovered through uh, for, through federal filings that those companies have to make when they hire anti union consultants. Um, so I do think that some of these people we spoke to uh, felt like these big multi state operators, these kind of WalMarts of cannabis, if you will. Uh, had a worse record than than say some of the smaller operations, and
0: it must be pretty hard to unionize in the industry anyway because of its tenuous legality nationwide
5: yeah, and I think it's important to note this i mean it, you know private sector workers in the United States by and large are non union uh, which is kind of the exception uh, it, you know across the world uh, you know in similar similar countries um, the the, I want to say that something like 6% of private uh, sector workers are unionized in the United States, which is incredibly low. It's been on the decline for decades. Uh, and so cannabis is no different. Uh, I think it, in the cannabis industry, like the newspaper industry that I previously worked in, there's a lot of really passionate people that are really excited about working in that industry. And that often can be a recipe for management and bosses to take advantage of that excitement um, and uh, pay people less than maybe they feel like they're worth and uh, create workplaces that uh, that can be toxic. Probably worth
1: noting that you, Dusty Christensen, were a big part of the movement to unionize the Daily Hampshire Gazette at that time. And That's this right. article in The Nation in conjunction with The Shoestring, big ups to The Shoestring and the great work that they're doing here locally, um, mm-hmm. is uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I think that <laughs> It's so nice to see this reversal. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> I lost my train of that. That you're, <laughs> you're involved in the union, and a big part of the story goes into the union busting at the end of it. So that, that's worth noting, too. But what I want to go back to for a second is the um, the idea that the person who died, uh, Lorna McMurray, uh, the first story, and you mentioned that we don't know this yet, had to do with dust and, and the cannabis dust. There is an OSHA study. We won't know about that until the end of the month. That's when they anticipate that study will be released, right? Whether this is actually... Have doctors changed their opinion about it? Is, Is it still up in the air? Do you anticipate that if it were cannabis dust, that this could then be some sort of wrongful death? lawsuit that could be pending?
5: That's a good question. I don't know about the lawsuit question. I do know that this is an issue that experts are really focused on. We spoke to one in particular uh, by the name of Cora Lynn Sack, an assistant professor at the University of Washington's Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences. Uh, that's a mouthful. Um, and she and her colleagues have done a, a lot of, uh, of, of really in-depth research into this particular issue uh, at indoor grow facilities uh, and, and looking at some of the hazards that may exist for for workers. She herself is an expert in in sort of respiratory hazards in the workplace. And in one report they released in 2020, they found a high prevalence of, quote, work-related, allergic, and particularly respiratory symptoms in uh, that facility's employees. Uh, They've since gone on to do more studies that seem to confirm those findings that, um, you know, not only is it the issue of dust, which is a serious occupational hazard in a whole bunch of industries. You know, we talked to one worker who likened it to his time in the construction industry, breathing sawdust and was going to make a correlation yeah. to like coal mining yeah, yeah. exactly exactly particulate matter is never good for your lungs but
1: um no mono ultra coniosis formerly the longest word in the english language Black lung
5: disease from coal. There you go. There you go. Uh, and, uh, uh, but obviously there's also this, this, uh, this issue of sensitization, which is a word that I learned also, uh, in reporting this story, uh, uh, to cannabis from working in these facilities. So, you know, I've heard from workers after this story was published, uh, who've reached out to me saying that, you know, I never needed an emergency inhaler until I started working in a cannabis facility. And so this is an issue that really needs a lot more research. And unfortunately, because of the federal prohibition, on, uh, on cannabis still continuing, uh, it's a little hard to do some of that research. But, you know, dedicated experts uh, like Cora Linsack are, are, are engaged in that work as we speak. And I would remind people, as somebody in the room who has asthma, dust is a trigger for asthma attacks
0: regardless of the type of dust. So, like, saying that it was an asthma attack as opposed to the dust causing it is kind of ignoring the cause of the initial attack altogether. So,
1: And the irony is not lost on me that this story was written... By Dusty Christensen <laughs> for The Nation magazine, the cover story right now. I really and
0: hope that people can see my disap- yeah.
1: hear my disapproving look right now. <laughs> but what I want to ask, and this may seem like a rudimentary question, if you are, if if cannabis can be eaten to get high, if you breathe cannabis all day, are people leaving the
5: workplace high? Uh, I doubt it uh, because that, I think that might be a. Uh, um, uh, uh, no, because you know, as I understand it, the process uh, through which uh, you're able to um, to turn cannabis into something that can make you high is called decarboxylation it 's why, for example, if you've ever made edibles, you uh, bake the the cannabis before you then put it in the the butter and and cook the two together. I am not a science person, so i don 't know the particular chemistry behind uh, what changes when you do that uh, but so I imagine that no you have just just inhaling the dust that has not been decarboxylated, I uh, would not do that to you. Right, I'm going to add that word to pneumonial, <laughs> <mono-altering>, microscopic <laughs> silicone. No, all kinds of great big words. There. I love
0: it. I have a question about language, actually. So we were talking with the Word nerd earlier about the informalization of language, and one thing that I noticed in your article is how casual like all of this like large amounts of information are. And you teach like reporting at UMass have... Has that a tr- been a trend that you've been a part of or attributing
5: or, like, just noticing and now participating in? You mean, like, de- like making language more informal yeah. and more... You know, as reporters, I, and, and this is something I always tell my students, like... Ultimately, we're be we're writing for everybody. We want to be understood, and and you know by any re- reader that picks something up, whether it's uh, you know a ten year old picking up the newspaper or a ninety year old, whether it's somebody with uh, a GED or several PhDs. Like we want our reporting to be accessible to everybody because we're our whole ethos is to hold powerful people accountable and to sort of be the people's voice, so to speak, capital P. And so I think it's really important to be conversational in writing. I'm always trying to avoid jargon. You know, I hate when I read these really heady essays that are so good that delve into really deep issues, but use all these words like co-committantly or, <laughs> you know, like, like any number of other words that, like, I'm just like, okay, if I have to use a dictionary to look it up, like, maybe isn't the most successful piece of writing, which, like, that's not to say there's not a place for those words, of course. Like, yeah, we used two big literature. words already earlier. Yes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I think, uh, you know, for me anyways, like, I like to write in simple language that people are going to understand and be able to, to digest uh, no matter uh, where they are in life. One thing that I got from your article, Dusty
1: Christensen, in The Nation, cover story right now, that I didn't know about was... When people, especially in the Commonwealth, think about cannabis, the city that I think they think of is Northampton. The number of pot shops there is high. It's the highest, I believe, certainly per capita. Um, But Holyoke may be the place where we should be thinking about when we think about cannabis because of production,
5: right? That's right. You know, I'm sure that a lot of folks in in this area know that Holyoke is one of the first industrially planned cities in the country. They have a municipal dam and canal system that makes it so that they can... uh, uh, have really cheap electricity, and as a result, there's this long history of industry, uh, you know, operating in Holyoke. It used to be the paper city. The former mayor Alex Morse joked that he wanted to make it rolling paper city. Uh, the city uh, rolled out the red carpet for the uh, the cannabis industry. There's two of you in here. Now. <laughs> I know, and for good reason because you know a lot of these mill buildings were sitting vacant, and is my understanding that other manufacturers aren't really able to use those buildings for the way that they're set up but uh the cannabis industry was and so it was this win-win for for economic planners in the the city of holyoke to be able to bring these new businesses into these mill buildings to breathe life back into them and to you know operate uh a business uh, you know in those places that maybe had been sitting vacant uh holyoke now has more licenses approved uh from the cannabis control commission than any other city in the commonwealth that's far more than boston than Worcester. Um, and, you know, uh, the economic planning director in the city, uh, Aaron Vega, who used to be the state rep uh, representing Holyoke. And um, it's quoted extensively in the article. Yes, uh, uh, you know, described it as a, as a mecca of, uh, for cannabis manufacturers. Um, so, yeah, Holyoke has really become a kind of uh, cannabis cluster here in our region when it comes to manu- uh, to growing and to manufacturing, which is when you take the... The plan to turn it into pre-rolls or or gummies or whatever other things that you're you're seeing on the on the store shelves.
0: There's something to the visuals of Holyoke being used for manufacturing and production, and Northampton being used for sales. That we don't have to get into. Right yeah, now. Mm. but I think. Uh, but those optics maybe, maybe, are right an, there. An obvious
1: connection, right there. We're speaking with Dusty Christensen, talking about exploitation, abuse, and death—the dark side of working in the weed industry. It does seem from your article, though, that this industry by and large is beneficial to at least Holyoke and many of the other Places where it, it's booming like this.
5: That certainly, I, I certainly think that, that that's the view of uh, you know economic planners and folks in in Holyoke. You know, obviously, when you're able to bring jobs and uh, and and tax uh, in, you know income into the city, especially to to buildings that were formerly vacant, uh, you know, that's considered a win. You know, I should note that uh, that these jobs, uh, especially when it comes to trimmers, post harvesters. Packagers are not exactly the highest paid jobs. Uh, the, the organization Vangst, which is a hiring platform for the cannabis industry, put out a report that in 2022, those folks made between 16 and $20 an hour. Uh, that's not a living wage in Western Massachusetts and nope. in, in many of the communities around here. And so um, I do think that that is a, a point to, to be considered, you know, that obviously there are these benefits to the cannabis industry coming in tax revenue, they also pay these community impact fees. Holyoke just used some of theirs to fix their roads, to, to pay for public art. So things that we can all agree are good things. Um, but obviously, it's a it's a mixed bag, and you know, I'll leave the decision about whether it's worth it or not up to the folks who do that. You know, for their for their living as, as economic planners, as reporters, I think it's our job to to make sure people are informed about all that goes into this. Uh, on those impact fees. This
1: is the only industry that has to pay those sort of things. You could have uh, a million liquor stores in your town. and There's no impact fees from those liquor stores. Is there a time, in your opinion, to let those go? Or is because of the dangers that we don't know about with, with the dangers of making cannabis in this way, is that a
5: reason to keep them Or keep is, them is it going? like
0: an offset because of the state versus federal
5: thing? Uh, well, you know, it's it's actually an interesting thing. Uh, you know, there has been, as you rightly note, some some controversy around these impact fees because, right, like other businesses, you know, liquor store doesn't have to pay an impact fee for their impact on the community, and I think you can all agree that they do have an impact. If you have a brewery, um, you're making alcohol, you don't have to pay an impact, right? Fee. Exactly. Um, there was, um, I'm, I'm, if I'm, there was a reform to the way that impact fees are are done on the state level uh, that went into the latest changes to the cannabis uh, law in our state. Um, and so, you know, there has been some changes to start to to give that up. I know Boston uh, just last year uh, refunded millions of ma- marijuana impact fees. Uh, I think they were the first city in the state to relinquish those funds uh, because there has been a lot of controversy. I know that... Um, Oh, it escapes me what uh, city, but uh, there was a city in the eastern part of the state uh, where the uh, mayor was essentially uh, collecting them as bribes and got uh, busted for that. Uh-huh. Um, so there has definitely been a lot of controversy about them. And, and I know that folks in the marijuana industry uh, are, are uh, against them, and I can understand why. Dusty
1: Christensen, a reporter, a professor at UMass teaching journalism and has written the cover story for The Nation magazine along in conjunction with our local independent journalist source, The Shoestring Exploitation, Abuse and Death, The Dark Side. Of working in the weed industry has a lot to do with things that go on here uh in holyoke and in the 413 thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me this is great
0: Uh, no problem up next the young at heart chorus they'll be bringing their concert the love show to the academy of music on sunday but they'll be right here in studio along with their director bob sillman with a little bit of that love just for you you're listening to the fabulous 413
1: Is the unmistakable sounds of the young at heart chorus, the valley, and the world's favorite octogenarian rock and roll chorus based right in Northampton, and we are joined in the studio by the founder of the young at heart chorus, Bob Silman, and two of the chorus members, John Reinhardt and Lee Wilson, uh maybe before we start talking about the genesis of this chorus and uh the future of the chorus and the performance happening this weekend. Maybe we should hear a song.
0: We should absolutely hear a song. <laughs>
1: Lee Wilson, you're going to be taking the lead on this one. Do you mind w- if we share uh, your age? I'm 82 years old.
3: What's that? One more time. My... I'm 82 years old. Oh, hey. Excellent. 82 years young. God, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> there we go.
1: Great. And we've got uh, Mark Gianfrito on the keyboard backing you up. What, are, what song are you going to perform?
3: I'm going to be doing... I still got it.
1: By Lee Fields. By Lee Fields. Another Lee.
3: I'm away. I'm good and dangerous. Take it from me and I'll show you how. Take my head, my shoes, my gun. I still got it. I still got it. Take my car, my house, my bed. I still got it, I still
4: got it it.
3: You gotta be cool, break all the rules It ain't about money, but you need some too tall ones, short ones, black ones, white ones, all ones. I still got it, I still got it. Take my head, my shoes, my guy, I still got it, I still got it. Take my car, my house, my bed, I still got it, I still got it. Take it from me i've seen everything you gotta be cool but you're breaking the wrong. love what you got if you don't use it you're gonna lose it take my head my shoes my guy, I still got it. I still got it. Take my car, my house, my bed. I still got it. I still got it. Take my head, my shoes, my guy. I still got it. I still got it. Take my car, my house, my bed. I still got it. I still got it. My, my, my whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah 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 yes yeah right, yeah is right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's lee wilson age 82 years old singing lee fields from the young at heart chorus lee how have you been singing your whole life
3: well i studied music uh, when I was younger, and I was uh, with the junior extension of the Tuesday morning music club. I always sang classical music, uh-huh. so yeah, and i sing with our church choir, yeah, yeah so, so.
1: And the, famously, the Young at Heart Chorus plays like rock and roll songs from the ages. Is there, is there an artist that you have discovered through this process that you now are a fan of that you had no idea about before?
0: No, no, you don't like it.
3: That that face is priceless. I wish, I wish you could see it. The one I just sang, you know. Who's
0: coming to the Drake next week? Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that we should have him on too.
1: We'll tell him that you came and sang a song. Sure. What
3: does this chorus mean to you, Lee? Well, you know, when you retire, you have to have something to do. Mm -hmm. So this keeps me busy. You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, because other than that, I don't know what I would be doing. Right now, and, you know, I just love every minute of it. Yeah, because it really fills the gap, even though it's just two days a week. But, you know, we have words that we have to learn, and, I mean, we have to keep our energy up. I go to the senior club or the senior group, and I'm with seniors, and I'm constantly going. I'm never home. Because you guys...
0: Dude, like dance moves at the same time. Like, you're way more active on stage than a lot of acts that I've actually seen, like, who are decades younger.
3: And this show. Really, yes. It's really, We're really doing it. Well, let's
1: let's hear a little bit about the show. Chorus director Bob Sillman, tell us about what will happen at the Academy of Music this Sunday.
6: Well, we're going to have a show called The Love Show. And God, we need love, right? Right. And, uh, love is all you need. <laughs> well, we got a lot of it in this show. All kinds of love, good love, bad love, you know, love gone sour. But, you know, what Lee didn't tell you is that... Uh, she didn't list as one of her favorite new performers is Lizzo, who she's going to be doing it. No, nice. oh well, very nice. Yeah, we won't tell you which song. Okay, but, I or, hope
0: it's "Cause I Love You." Well,
6: it's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I was, mostly because, like, I'm listening to you sing. And I'm like, oh, I would really love to hear you. Yeah, do that. that'd be really but nice. But that's I can keep that as my my prize private. You know, project in my heart,
6: <laughs> Bob. This course has been we one that we'll work on right after the show. Thank you.
1: <laughs> this course has been going on for more than forty years now, right? Yeah,
6: this is forty-first year.
1: Where did this? idea come from? To get people of a certain age, now over 80, is that the, or is, what's, the, what's the age limit to be part of the chorus You at have point? to
6: be 75. 75. But the average age right now is 86. Mm-hmm.
1: We had Rosemary Kane on, on St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. She sent a and wrote a wonderful thing about how this chorus, what it means to her as a musician. But where did the idea come from to do songs with older people, but that come from a different generation?
6: Well, you know, I got this job um, running a meal site for the elderly. And uh, well, wow, the food was pretty horrible but uh so I needed to kind of redeem myself and do something and This woman came around and said, "I can play the piano. can you get some people together and We got twenty five people to show up at a rehearsal, and that 's what we now have twenty five it just keeps it's just kept going for forty one years and it was really cool in the very beginning too It all started at one place the walter salvo house in northampton but now we're much more of a of regional chorus much more diverse than we used to and be.
1: internationally go you have historically gone on international tours there's an incredible documentary that was
6: made about what year was that that was 2006 they came and made the documentary and then it got picked up by fox searchlight in 2008 yeah and made went around the world yeah
1: we're talking with Bob Silman, the director of the Young at Heart Chorus, and we have heard the voice of Lee Wilson uh, and the piano of Mark gianfrido but we want to hear from John Reinhardt, and we'll hear his song coming up right after this on the Fabulous Four One Three. We're back on the Fabulous 413 with the Young at Heart Chorus with chorus director Bob Sillman with Lee Wilson, 82 years old with a gorgeous voice. We'll be performing Lizzo and more on Sunday at the Academy of Music. And John Reinhart, would you care to share your age with the audience?
4: Well, if I live to be on October the 1st, I will be 88 years old. Amazing. Yes. <laughs>
1: and what song are you going to sing, John?
4: Um, um, Aaron Neville song. Um tell it like it is. Background. Tell it like it is.
0: We've been invited to sing background yeah. again.
4: Yes, We're part of the chorus. Now. Yes, you are. This is gonna be cool. If you want something to play with, go and find yourself a toy. Baby my time too expensive and I'm not a little boy if you are serious don't play with my heart it makes me furious but if you want me To love you Then baby I will Girl you know I will Tell it like it is Don't be ashamed Let your conscience be your guide But I I Know deep down inside of me I believe that you love me Forget your Life is too short to have sorrow. You may be here today and gone tomorrow. You may as well get what you want. So go on and live, baby. Go on and live. Tell it. Like it is, I'm nothing to play with, go and find yourself a toy, tell it like it is, my time is too expensive, and I'm not a little boy. Don't be ashamed, let your conscience be your guide, but I I know deep down inside of me, I believe that you love me, forget your foolish pride, tell Tell it like it it is, is. got to tell it, tell it,
1: tell it like it
5: is,
4: Tell it, tell it, tell it like it is. Woo!
1: John Reinhardt on lead, eighty-eight years old, one of the members of the Young at Heart chorus, and Marchi and Frito on the wonderful keyboard. There doing Aaron Neville. Maybe he heard it. I think he lives in like either the Berkshires or upstate New York. And now that we cover the four counties, perhaps he heard that. I'll ask the same question to you, John. In the minute or two we have left, uh, any artists that you've discovered through this process that you didn't know before?
4: Um, not really. No, not, <laughs> not. <laughs> and what
1: about and and the chorus itself? What what does the
4: community around the chorus mean to you? Well, it means a lot to me. Uh, like Lee said, uh, since I retired, I'm 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 the type of person that likes to stay busy. And um, I worked until I was 74 years old, and I stopped working then because um, my job lost our contract, so, <laughs> so I retired. Yeah. <laughs> so, you would have kept going. I would kept going. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Silman,
1: uh, before we break here, tell us one more time about the show this Sunday and what it means.
6: Well, the show is called The Love Show, and it's going to be uh, at the Academy of Music Theater Sunday. At 3 p.m., you can get tickets at aomtheater.com. That's theater... RE.com. The pretentious way I like to say. Yeah. But I, I love you. Yeah. I love you,
0: Academy Music Theater. I also love that your shows are always at like a really reasonable time of day where like you can go in the afternoon, have a nice little spot of music, and yeah. then go do other things. Because
1: none of us are getting any younger. No. Soon yeah. you'll be old enough, Bob Simon, to be in your own chorus. I am going to be very close to it soon.
0: <laughs> well, thank you all so
6: much for coming in. Thanks for having us, Mike. No problem. No problem.
0: Yeah. Next week, East Hampton is full of cool things, and that list now includes a film festival we'll Talk to organizer Chris Ferry and filmmakers Melissa Dematos and Wally Marzano Lesnovich about what they're bringing to Hooville. And Nero Orchestra
1: makes a return to the stage next week. We'll talk with conductor Kaylin Marcel Manson and the first chair violinist Michi Wianko from the Silk Road Ensemble. Our director is Tony Aaron Wrangler Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy. Now you can be crowned King of England, Cordis. Our technical team is Bart. Fill in the blank: Rankin, Kara. Can we shift to Legion's Foster and Punk Rock Dubai?
0: Musical thanks to Spouse and Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra and a large slew of others. We'll
1: see you Monday in the Fabulous 413.